Well, good afternoon to all of you. Seems like I'm here almost every week doing this. Maybe that should be incentive for all of you to pray thy kingdom come. Or your gathering occur so there'll be more and uh, others to speak. Although we do have others that speak some, and I appreciate that. Some of you may have noticed that huge full moon that came up over the mountain to the east the other night. Uh, it looked twice its normal size as it came over the mountain, it seemed to me. And uh, I kind of got a chill thinking the feast is exactly a month off because the full moon occurred and next full moon we'll be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. It is interesting to look at the calendar this year in that we are keeping the feast a month later than most people are. It's as late as it can be, in fact, and that is according to the heavenly bodies that regulate that. It's as late as it can be. Had we held it this month as others are, the phenomenon that is interesting to me would not have occurred. However, since we're keeping it when we are, <clears throat> if you look at the calendar, some of you I'm sure have noticed, noted this, that we have four back-to-back Sabbaths. At trumpets, at atonement, uh, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles and the last day of the Feast all come adjacent to a weekly Sabbath. And this is something the Jews so assiduously aspire to avoid, is this happening. Uh, sometimes one or two will fall that way, and they carefully postpone things so that it can't happen. But this year it all lined up in such a way that we have back-to-back Sabbaths on all four occasions. And not only that, we have three important days all in a row. Feast of Trumpets, weekly Sabbath, and then the fast of the seventh month. Uh, so we have three important days right there, nose-to-nose-to-nose. It can't line up any better than that, or from that standpoint, any better than that. So I don't know whether it has any significance or not, but it is, it's interesting that it does line up that way a month after everyone else does it. And we don't postpone, so it'll still be back-to-back Sabbaths all the way through. Well, you remember last week <clears throat> we went through, well, we started a, a verse into or two into Ezra and then went uh, forward from Isaiah 40 onward to show the background laid uh, in the end time for the end time Cyrus to show up and the story of the building of the temple that we were just about to get into in Ezra. Now, you know, and we have reviewed that Haggai says at the end, there must be a temple built, and uh, his people will not think that that needs to be done, or it isn't the time to do it, and will be going on about their business, but God says, consider things and the way they are, and the way they're about to become, and realize that you have a bag full of holes. So then we went to Isaiah 40 and showed, uh, from a standpoint leading up to the time that Osiris will come and call for the temple to be built, in Jerusalem to be built, that there will be a voice crying in the wilderness that God is going to make 
the crooked straight, the valleys exalted, the hills made low, and so on. Uh, the governments of this world will be torn down, and uh, the crooked will be made straight, and God's glory will be revealed. So this is from a spiritual standpoint. And then that good tidings are to be brought to Zion and Jerusalem, good news about the future. Then God calls for the nations to gather together and war. And he calls for his witnesses to come forward, his people that know that he is God, and that they are to be a light to the world, and that one of his main servants is blind and deaf to really what is happening until the time that this begins to occur. And he tells those who do understand not to fear, not to worry, that he is going to take the Babylonians and their noblemen, their leaders down. They'll be destroyed. And that God will show himself to his people. And that they will show forth his praise. He says, don't fear again. And that we are his witnesses. And that he is the only God there is. So not to worry about it. Then he comes down to 44 and 45 and shows that he is sending a man of the world who does not know God to say to the Jerusalem, it will be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Uh, that fits with Cyrus, king of Persia, following the collapse of Babylon, helping the Jews go back and build a temple in Jerusalem. Now I want to take it forward from there a little bit today. Uh, is a matter of events that shall occur and must occur and show that this is indeed end time. Uh, going down from chapter 45 where he addresses uh, Cyrus and tells him the things that he will do for him to make sure that the things of God are shown and that he is God and his purpose is, uh, verse 5 of Isaiah 45, I am the Eternal, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me, speaking to Cyrus, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Eternal, and there is none else. Now I ask you, when the original Cyrus helped the Jews build a temple after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, did the entire world, as a result of that, come to know that he was the only God and there is none else? No, that was just a physical thing that was done by a remnant of the Jews who went back to Jerusalem to build a temple. It was not a worldwide proclamation that God is God. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Eternal, do all these things. And then he says things are going to open up and righteousness will spring up together and the Eternal will have created it. Did righteousness necessarily spring up from the Jews going back to the temple? No, not necessarily. And it certainly wasn't a worldwide thing. He goes on down uh, and talks more about Cyrus but in verse 18, he says, For thus says the Eternal that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. He says, I will have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I'll speak righteousness. I'll declare things that are right. 
And then he throws out a challenge in verse 20, Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you that are escaped of the nations, that have no knowledge, that set up the wood of their graven image and pray to a God that cannot save. So he said, come to me. He does say he's going to stir his people. Then in the end of verse 23, he says that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear that he is God. That has never happened in the history of the earth. So this whole context here is of some event at the end time when God, so that when God is done with what he is setting to his hand to do here, every knee on earth is going to bow to God or, as it indicates in other places, be broken. It'll bow, whether it does it willingly or unwillingly. In verse 25, In the eternal shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. That also has never happened. Even in the original story, only about 43,000 went back to Jerusalem. That was it. It certainly wasn't all the Jews, and it certainly wasn't all of Israel. And it wasn't every, every knee. Now notice the context also here. I think it is very interesting in chapter 46. Baal bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols were upon the beasts, and so on. These were major gods of the Babylonians. And they're stooping down. And God calls uh, for captivity. Verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. So whatever gods modern Babylon has will not be able to save it. Whether it's the god of the dollar which is sinking rapidly, or the god of materiality that is tied to that, or we as a people who think we are untouchable, or whatever our gods might be today in this, this, in this country. They won't save us. He said to turn to God or to him and he will... Let's, let's read verse... Uh, let's start in verse 3. Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. Speaking of the church first here. Which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age I am he. And even to whore hairs or gray hair will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. So God has been with us from the time that we were conceived spiritually, came into his church at whatever age we might have been, and here at the end, God says, I will carry you. We have gotten old. The church basically is gray-headed today, or bald-headed, except for a few young. Overall, it is aging very rapidly. But God says he will carry us through this, and he will deliver us. I think this ties very well with Luke, where it says that this generation or this people will not pass before this thing comes to an end. Uh, God's going to carry the old people through it. Now, he says the idols of Baal or Babylon won't save them. And then in chapter 47, he calls for the destruction of Babylon. Now, the reason I bring this forward is this. In the original story, Cyrus was the king of the Medes, and Babylon had already fallen when Cyrus stood up and Daniel told him 
hey, you're the guy that's supposed to make sure the temple gets built. And then Cyrus proclaimed it, as we'll see when we get to Ezra. But here we have a voice crying in the wilderness. We have God saying he's going to destroy. We have God calling for his people, his witnesses, to stand up, not fear, and work. Then we have a Cyrus that comes on the scene, whom God says he will use to show physical riches and hidden things that God has done because he's a physical man and will do physical things, not spiritual. Then it shows, after that, if this is in chronological order, the destruction of Babylon. So it appears that Cyrus will show up on the scene, in this case, in the end-time fulfillment, before the destruction of Babylon. It was not that way in the original case. Babylon fell, then Cyrus showed up as the king of the Medes. So this seems to change the story somewhat. That was a minor fulfillment back there. This is the major fulfillment when everyone, east to west, around the world, is going to know as a result of what happens just before Babylon falls, it appears, that God is God and there is none other. Of course they will reject it, but he is going to make it known. He talks about the destruction of Babylon in chapter 47. He calls in chapter 48 for the remnant of Israel to turn to him, that some have been in the church, but they've not known the God of Israel in truth nor in righteousness, chapter 48, verse 1. They call themselves of the holy city, they say, I'm part of the church, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. But he said, it's not in truth nor in righteousness. So he's calling for those who would be truly righteous to show up, to stand up, to be ready, and to do his will. And he's going to show some new things that he's not shown from the beginning, verse 6. But we couldn't have known lest you should say, behold, behold, I knew them. Then he says, verse 14, he will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans, and makes one last call in verse 20 to get out of Babylon. Go you forth, flee from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing declare you, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth. Say you, the Eternal has redeemed his servant Jacob. So a call has to go out to all the world that those who are true believers in God gather themselves together and to flee from Babylon, to get away from the entire system of this world and particularly of this country. Now I want to go back and review. This is something we've said before, and I certainly used it in the sermon on Joel in the end time church. In Acts 2, you remember, and I'll review this briefly, that Peter had said when he saw speaking in tongues, when he saw the fire coming down from heaven and so on, he said in verse 15, These aren't drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now did all that happen? No, it just started there. But the sun and moon didn't turn dark. The day of the Lord didn't come. What Peter was seeing and what he understood to be was a minor fulfillment of that. It went only so far, and then it stopped. Now, the same is true of this end-time story about Babylon and about the church and about Cyrus and all that, it, that we have covered so far. What happened originally with the Jews at Jerusalem was a minor fulfillment of what will transpire in the end and go way beyond what happened when the Jews went out of Babylon originally in that 70-year captivity. We've come up to the end of the 70 years of the church being captive in Babylon, and God has told us to get away from it, and some are beginning to respond to that. More will as things progress. But I think Cyrus has to show up and has to make a call for Jerusalem to be built, and the, the temple to be established and its foundation, and then these things will begin to happen. Because God has to show through a human who does not know him, so that everyone will know from the east to the west that he is God. So we are looking for someone to show up to do that. Now let's go back to the book of Ezra. I barely got into it, but this story is written in conjunction with that first fulfillment, and it is logical and proper for us to go back and read this and see that the end-time fulfillment has to tie together with this. Now, what did Peter do when he saw certain things begin to happen? He went back to the Old Testament prophets and said, this must be what Joel was talking about. Now, when Peter recognized that and went back and quoted Joel too, he did not realize that the thing was not going to carry on through and finish at that time. It only went so far, and he recognized the symptoms, and then it stopped. The same thing happened when the Jews left Babylon and went back to Jerusalem to build the temple. It only went so far, and then it stopped. The whole world did not come to see that God was God from the east to the west. And blood and fire and hail in the end of the earth did not occur. And if this story is chronological, Babylon had already fallen, whereas right now we are anticipating the fall of Babylon in the not-too-great-distant future. But it appears, if this section of, of Isaiah be chronological, that the Cyrus must come on the scene 
And God's people must be called upon to gather before Babylon actually falls. Now, I don't know that it is chronological. Time will tell. Because God carries things forward many times like in a novel. You know how they'll, they'll start with one thread and they'll bring it so far and then they'll go back and start another thread and bring it so far and maybe another and another depending on how involved the plot is. And they keep going from one thread to the other back and forth and then at the end, all the threads come together and finish the story. Now that's the way even the book of Isaiah is written because he calls back in chapter 8 uh, on uh, Assyria the rod of his anger to punish Israel. And then he flashes from there to chapter 11 with the beginning of the millennium. So he starts a thread and moves it forward to its conclusion. Then he starts another thread and moves it to its conclusion. But so far, I don't see, in this context of Isaiah 40 on through the early 50s, any flashback. It's a story that starts and then proceeds forward from that point and does not go on forward to the millennium or the return of Christ until way on down the line from there. So it appears to be in order. So I expect some of these things that we're talking about here to happen before the United States actually falls. And if you look at the United States right now, it's certainly tottering. Uh, more and more world opinion is turning against us. More and more beginning to see us as the axis of evil or the evil itself. Not just the axis of it, but evil itself. And they want us to come down. Our dollar is falling. Problems are occurring. So it appears that that is not too far off. Therefore, these prophecies we're talking about have to be fulfilled very soon. Very soon. All right, with that understanding of the timing, let's go into the book of Ezra more today. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. So Jeremiah, in chapter 25 and 29, about the 70 years, it said that at the end of 70 years, uh, that this thing that Cyrus did would happen, that the captivity would be ended and the Jews would be released. And I commented on that, that there is also a 70 years in Zechariah 2, which is an end-time uh, prophecy about the church today, and at the end of 70 years of the church's captivity in Babylon, God would begin to make it possible for a people to start coming out of Babylon. And interestingly, from the formation of the church in 1933 through 34, in that section of time, uh, in 2003, we began to divide up this land to allow us to move out of the cities of Babylon 70 years later. I think that the finish of that 70 years and the beginning of an opportunity to come out of Babylon has actually begun. Somebody asked me some time back, I've been a year or two, I suppose, I don't remember, 
Well, aren't we past that 70 years, several years now? Well, I don't think so. I think that in a very small way, that may have started. But God has made an opportunity, and it will be expanded once Cyrus comes on the scene and these things of Isaiah 44 and 45 come to pass. So, in order to fulfill what Jeremiah had said, and Jeremiah is an end-time book, these things had to come to pass. So there is much for us to learn about the story of the end from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah because they are a minor fulfillment or a type of what would come later. And if they are a type of what will come later, then there must be a lot there that we need to pay attention to. Okay, so I think we're going to learn a lot as we go through this book about the church today and what is to happen and how it will occur. So Cyrus stood up and made a proclamation and put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven. Now, he didn't know the Lord God of heaven except through Daniel and a few Jews who were keeping the truth. But he himself, according to Isaiah 45, did not know God. He was a Gentile man, a king, but he referred to the Lord God of heaven, knew of him. And that that God, in spite of the fact that he didn't know God, had given him a job and a responsibility. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, he did not rule over all the kingdoms of the entire earth at that time. It was a smaller kingdom, and yet the major uh, empires of the world were under him, and his kingdom stretched even into the east. Now, maybe for the most part, other than people scattered here and there, all the world-ruling empires and people were under him at that time. But what he does at the end, it is clear, has to do with the ends of the earth from the east to the west, that the influence, that the power that God gives, the understanding, uh, the events, will lead the whole earth to come under or be a part of the knowledge of what God is doing and how. So he's charged him, he said, to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then he asks a question. Who is there among you of all his people? There will come a man who will address the people of God and he will ask a question. Who is willing to listen to what I have to say? Who is there among you of all his people? Out of all the church of God, who are the people of God today? Who will listen to the Cyrus, whomever he may be? His God be with him. Now he doesn't say, my God be with him. He says, his God be with him. It is the Lord God of heaven, but who of you who follow that God is whom he addresses here? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's said specifically twice here. Jerusalem, which is in Judah, wherever Judah is. 
the Jews have been scattered throughout all Israel and even among the Gentiles. It was said in Genesis 49 and other places that they would be scattered. But this is in the original land of Judah, wherever that may be. I wonder. God has built his church, most of it, in this land. Ninety percent, more or less, of the church is in this land. Would he have built it anywhere but Judah? Just a question. If we are the spiritual Jews, where is Judah? We shall see where God determines that his temple and his city of Jerusalem is to be built. Because Osiris will show up and will ask, Who is there among you of the people of God? Of Herbert Armstrong and the end time work, if you will, that will come and do what God has charged me to be sure gets done. Doesn't say he'll build it. He does say he's charged me to build it, but then he says, I'm not going to do it myself. Who will come do it? Unconverted man. As God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the eternal God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. It stipulates here that this is the God who will be there. Okay? And whosoever remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So he called for volunteers who would listen, who would take it on and go do it. And he said anybody that decides to stay behind, let him at least provide gold and silver and goods and beasts and whatever is needed in order to be sure that this is accomplished. So he said some will physically come, others need, if they stay back, to support. Calls for both. Now of the two, if this is a project that God is doing, and this is in Scripture now that we're reading, of the two, I would, be ra- I would rather be among those who actually go to do it, wouldn't you? If God says something needs to be done, then I don't want to just give a few bucks to somebody else to go do it. I'd rather be involved. I mean, that's just, I guess, humanly the way I am. Whatever, wherever the center is, I want to be there. I want to be in the middle of it. I would wish that all God's people would want to be right in the middle of what God is going to do. Now that doesn't say that they will necessarily be totally left out if they help in some way, but isn't it better to be right in the middle of what God's doing? All right, what was the response? Verse 5. Now remember, this is the end time. This, isn't, this is talking about the end time. It is a smaller fulfillment of what will happen at the end. Or here's the response. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. 
with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the eternal which is in Jerusalem. So, at the end, there's going to be a Cyrus who stands up. He's going to say, God has given me a commission. The Jerusalem has to be built and the foundation of the temple has to be laid. Be someone who says that. And there will be some leaders somewhere who stand up and with them some people whom God will stir. Now does that not remind you of the book of Haggai where God says the temple's got to be built and he calls upon the leadership, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and then he says, I will stir the people to come and build the temple. And Haggai and Zechariah definitely are end-time books. So God is going to raise the spirit of some people. He's going to stir them to action when the leadership stands up after Cyrus calls for it. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. So some willingly offered to help, others were called upon to help, and then did. You know, people always fall into different categories, don't they? If a project needs done, you have those that jump up and say, I'm in the ditch. You have those who will stand in the ditch and look, and then if you hand them a shovel, they might get in. You'll have those that sit in their house and say, oh, they're busy out there. You have all kinds. And it is going to be true here at the end as well, on a spiritual level. You will have those whom God stirs who will come. You'll have those who willingly help and those who help when they're asked. That has never changed with human beings. There are people who come around and say, what needs done? There will be those who will help if they see something being done, and those who will help if asked, and those who don't want to help, period. You always have that category. Which are we? What will we be? Okay, verse 7. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the eternal, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. So, this is a little different than what we read in Isaiah 44 and 45. It's similar, but a little different. There it says that to Cyrus will be shown the hidden riches, the things that are put away that can't be found. Yet here, in this circumstance, they had them in the warehouse. All they had to do was open the warehouse door and bring them out. So it was a partial fulfillment and not an exact fulfillment of Isaiah 45. In the end time, there are going to things, be things which are absolutely hidden that nobody knows of that are going to be found. God is going to lead the way to them. They're going to be revealed, and it will have to happen. The vessels of the house of the eternal have to be brought out brought together. Now, vessels can mean two different things. 
We are the vessels of God's Spirit. We're the building blocks for the temple on a spiritual level. And yet God is also dealing here with a human being who does not know God, who brings forth vessels of the temple. Now, he's a human being, so he's not bringing, I mean, he's an unconverted human being, and he's bringing forth something then that appears to me to have to be physical that are the vessels of the temple, not the spiritual. The spiritual leaders will be Zerubbabel and Joshua and others. The physical leader will be someone who does not know God. So you have a spiritual work, and you also have with that a physical work that goes hand in hand with it. Both have to be accomplished. So I believe that we will see the physical gold and silver vessels come forth from some place, somewhere, sometime, and probably just before Babylon falls, if the chronology is intact there in Isaiah 40 through 55, with no break. I don't know that that is the case, but it appears that way at this point. Now, I had, I guess, most of my life considered, without understanding these prophecies, that maybe at some time at the end, God would unearth some things that would show the world that he is God. I I thought of it more in a general way, because, you know, Noah's Ark has to be somewhere, and the chariots have to be in the Red Sea somewhere, and the vessels of the temple have to be somewhere. Uh, There are so many things that have happened in the past that have left a story, if it is but found. There have been rumors for years and years of the Noah's Ark there on Mount Ararat in Turkey, but because of political reasons and glaciers and deep snowpacks, no one has ever truly confirmed that that is the place or that that is the ark. Overflights and pictures taken uh, seem to indicate that from different reports you get, but it hasn't come to pass in such a way that it's undeniable. Well, there are a lot of things that God could cause to happen here at the end, But here, the prophecies are becoming very specific, and we're beginning to understand them in the end-time context of things that must happen. So Cyrus brought forth the vessels of the house of the Eternal, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and put them in the house of his gods. Even those, verse (laughs) 8, did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, the Persian name for Zerubbabel was Sheshbazar. So it's speaking of Zerubbabel here, and we'll see Zerubbabel and Joshua show up in the next chapter. Uh, But that is the individual to whom Cyrus entrusted the vessels of the temple of God that came out of the storehouse or the warehouse there in Babylon. And this is the number of them. Thirty chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, uh, twenty-nine knives, thirty basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort or a different type, four hundred and ten, and other vessels, a thousand. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand four hundred. All these did Cheshbazar or Zerubbabel bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. 
Now, why does God go into such detail there in the actual numbers? To me, it would be very interesting if all that that was taken to Babylon and cataloged and categorized there has now been hidden somewhere, and God is going to use some man to find that and show it. Now, what if what is hidden turns out to be exactly this inventory. Wouldn't that make your hair curl? There's a reason God put these numbers in. And I'm speculating here, of course. But if that is the amount that was brought back, and it was not plundered at some time after that, it is probably the exact amount that was hidden, wouldn't you think? Because these had been made back in the time of Solomon and then had been plundered and taken away. And that's the inventory of what was there in Babylon. So somewhere in Babylon today, these vessels are hidden. They must be brought forth. Now on a spiritual level, is it possible that all those spiritual vessels or individuals that come forth would number the same? But the remnant from God's church would be 5,400. I don't know. That's just a question mark. Uh, there are other areas that I've speculated on that number, and, and I don't know that the Bible confirms it one way or another, but the end-time Elijah uh, or the end-time Joshua is a type of, of Elijah, or Elijah was a type of the end time, actually. And there were 7,000 in Elijah's day that had not bowed their knee to Baal. Uh, Paul mentioned that same number again in the early New Testament church. So I thought there's a possibility 7,000 would be the number of people in the remnant that gathers to the two witnesses at the end, uh, as Haggai says will happen. So 7,000 is an interesting number. 5,400 is also an interesting number. Uh, those are the two, I think, that have are most pregnant with possibility, let's put it that way. We've thought maybe 12,000 is an outside number, representing 1,000 from each tribe, but I don't know that we have anything really to base that on. But the 7,000 with Elijah and this 5,400 here, one of these could be a very revealing number. So, we shall see. But I think that it is clear that these vessels of the temple must be a part of the hidden riches and hidden treasures that are mentioned in Isaiah 45. The things of God that were hid. Because see, it's not just gold or silver. What does a lump of gold or a lump of silver prove? But if you have the actual temple vessels made of gold and silver that were originally there, then it proves that God is God. And if these show up, can you imagine the physical or material or dollar value that the churches and the people of this world would put on a treasure like this? The Protestants would put a high number on it. The Catholics would put a high number on it. I bet the Jews would put a high number on it. 
And I'll bet the United States government or any other government, wherever it was found, would put a high number on it. And so would the museums and everybody else. Because this would be the archaeological find of the ages. We have and have had hundreds, thousands of people combing the entire Middle East, digging tunnels like rabbits and weasels underneath Jerusalem and the Middle East, trying to find these things because they recognize from history that they have to be hidden, they have to be buried somewhere. They have to be. And therefore, they are digging here and there all over the Middle East looking for this temple treasure. So it is something that has their attention, and it is something when it happens, that will grab the entire world's attention. It will not be done in a corner. God is going to show some things to the world that will amaze them. And it has to be done in conjunction with Zerubbabel and Joshua, the end-time two witnesses, and the church of God. That is very clear from Haggai and Zechariah. And it is clear here that we're talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua. So those types from Ezra and Nehemiah are brought forth in Haggai and Zechariah in an end-time fulfillment. So there has to be an unconverted man whom God refers to as Cyrus, who does not know God, who works in tandem with the leadership of the church of God, to show that God is God, and one of the ways it is going to be done is through the temple vessels, both spiritually with us as individuals and physically with the original gold and silver vessels of the temple. It's going to be done on both a spiritual and a physical level so that there is no question. Cannot be denied. can be rejected, but it will be the truth. Has to happen. All right, chapter 2. How much time do I have? Oh, I'm in good shape. Now, these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away. And then he gives a long list here. Most stayed in Babylon, but here is a small amount that responded to Cyrus' call that God stirred who came to build the temple. All right. These are the children of the, of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and came again to Jerusalem and Judah, every one to his city. Now, on a physical level, they had taken all these people out of their towns and cities, hauled them to Babylon. There they stayed 70 years. And after 70 years' captivity, which Jeremiah, remember, had said would be a long one, the end of 70 years, they would be released and they would be able to get out of Babylon and go and serve God. And these are those which came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, and Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, Baanah. Baana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. 
And then it numbers. Do we need to read all that? Numbers all these people that came out. I've read this before and thought, well, why did God just go on and on? I mean, time's precious in the Bible. And yet he names all these people that came out of there. just goes on and on and on. The fathers, the names, the tribes, and whatever. Family names. And yet he does it. It's boring to read, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, you know, it's not... A, it's not you don't turn to Ezra 2 when you decide, well, I need to study the Bible today. I'm going to find something interesting. I think I'll go to Ezra 2 and read all those names of those people that came out of Babylon. I've, n- I've never read this for that reason. Ever. Probably never will. Maybe I will, too. Maybe I will. One time in the future, I might. Why did God put this here? I think there's a reason. Notice down in verse 23, it mentions the men of Anatoth, 128. Uh, Here we've developed a village we call Anatoth. But he goes on in and mentions all these people. You know... God doesn't name an awful lot of people in the Bible, does he? When Paul decided he would list the faithful in Hebrews 11, he just gave a brief summary of the main leaders, and then he says, and then there are lots of others, and we don't have time to talk about David and Jephthah and so on and so forth. He went on and on. To get mentioned in Scripture is pretty exciting in a way. What if your name were in here? What if your very own name were right here? Someone who came up out of Babylon and came to build in the temple of God. It would take on more interest, wouldn't it? If your name were in there and names of some people you might know, I think it would. I don't think the book of Acts is finished yet. It doesn't say amen at the end of it like it does the rest of the New Testament books. It just stops right there. The prophecies of the end time have to occur. And I do believe that the book of Acts will be finished in the names of those people who are involved in the end time work, those who do the sacrifice that is necessary to come out of Babylon and go and build the temple of God will be listed in the Bible when it is finished. So this might not be very personal. It might be kind of boring just to read through here to you and to me. But what if our names were all written at the end of the book of Acts? Or maybe Ezra has a, a postscript attached to the end that says, now we'll talk about the end-time fulfillment of this and what happened there when Zerubbabel and Joshua showed up and Osiris showed up and called for God's people to come and build the temple of God. And God stirred them, and here are their names. I'd find that a lot more interesting reading. I expect that in some form this will happen. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he makes a positive statement about these people. There are a lot of people are mentioned in the Bible, quite a few, that aren't very positive at all. Pretty bad guys are named. But let's give God credit. When there are those who respond to him and do what he says, 
he will give credit where credit is due. I would like to be in this list someday, hope to be, and I hope all of us here can be, and many, many more will be added, whether it be 5,400 or 7,000 or whatever the name number eventually turns out to be. There are about 43,000 of these people. Now, let's go on down. Uh, rather than read all these, which I don't think is necessary at this point, we don't know them yet. Now, it might be interesting someday in a resurrection, when all these people come up to physical life, not probably being in the kingdom of God at that point, or even if they're in the first resurrection as part of the first fruits, because a few from the Old Testament are. Maybe God will include these. I don't know that, one way or the other. But at some point, whether it be the first resurrection or the second, they're going to come up. And their names will be here, and I think it'll be interesting to go meet them all. Now, it might not be real exciting to go back and just read this list today. But if they can pop up in a resurrection, and I can go back and say, oh, you're up here in verse 50. That would be kind of interesting to me. And then you could talk. And we could compare our experience in the end-time temple with their experience originally and see how the stories match. Now, that would be, to me, very interesting. So some things may kind of appear boring today, but they might not be boring in the future. Okay? God didn't put this in here for no reason. Uh, let's go down to verse 59, because I think there's an interesting point here. He names all the people that did come, and then there's a change in category here in verse 59 which is interesting in itself. These were they which went up from Telmila, uh, Telharsa, Carib, Aden, and Immer. But they could not show their father's house and their seed whether they were of Israel. Now up to this point, everyone was listed as being of Israel or of Judah, but then you had a category of people who came whose genealogy had been lost. They couldn't really prove that they truly were Israelites. Now this is a job that God gave Israel to do. And yet there were people who showed up to do it who couldn't prove that they were indeed an Israelite. Interesting dilemma. Well, I want to help. But this is a job that only Israel can do. It names them, the children of Deliah, the children of Tobiah, the children of Nakoda, 652. And of the children of the priests, the children of Hebiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillaiah, uh, which took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called after their name. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. If they couldn't prove from the genealogy that they truly qualified to be priests of God, they were put from it. Now, is that telling us that here at the end, there may be those who show up 
and want to help, but they are not converted. They don't really have the Spirit of God. They're there, they're interested, they have some head knowledge, but they're not truly converted. And they might have to be separated out. And the Tirshatha said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. In other words, <coughs> in that time they had, remember on Aaron's vest, they had the twelve stones that represented Israel. And when they tried to decide if someone was, had done something or needed to know which tribe someone was in, that tribe would light up and then they could go right down to the family using the Urim and Thummim. So they didn't have that at this point. And they said, you know, you can't prove who you are, therefore we're going to have to wait until the Urim and Thummim is introduced again and use that to determine if you truly are of Israel. But there had to be a leadership that could make that determination. Now will it be that in the end, when this thing starts to happen, that those whom God stirs to come will come, but among them will also come who are not converted, but who are interested. There is a story, I think that's back in as, uh, Nehemiah. Where is that? That some came and said, we want to help, and they were told, no, you're not one of us. Uh, that's somewhere back here. I won't take the time to find it, but the story is there. Will that again occur? I should think that it would. Now let's consider this. We understand from Zechariah 2 that Jerusalem will not be built as a walled city in the end time, but it will be built as villages or towns without walls. And speculation has been made on how many there would be. Someone suggested maybe seven. Why? Why would there be seven? Why not three or four? I think it's an interesting question, and perhaps the Bible does even provide the answer. Uh, let's... Keep your finger here, maybe, and turn back to Isaiah 41. Now, this is the context we're talking, beginning in Isaiah 40, about a voice that cries in the wilderness, preparing a way for God, a prep crew, if you will, and the glory of God will be revealed. And he says in verse 19, then, skipping over this, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, and he names seven trees. Now, trees can represent churches. From Zechariah 11, we see that three shepherds or three works of religious nature will be knocked down. And at the beginning of that chapter, 11 of Zechariah, it talks about three major trees being cut down. So trees in that context <coughs> are typical of churches. God says he'll build three, or seven, churches in the wilderness. I find this very interesting if you tie in Revelation 2 and 3. 
we heard in the sermonette. Let me go back to Revelation 1, just for a moment here. Pick this story up. Now, do you remember in Zechariah 3 where it said before Joshua were set a set of stone with seven eyes? We talked about that last week. Uh, and that the and in chapter 4, Zerubbabel and Joshua are mentioned as the two witnesses who feed all seven churches the golden oil that pours out from them, in other words, speaking the truth. All right, let's go to Revelation, which is an end-time book. Verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So in Zechariah 4, the seven candlesticks do represent the seven churches. And that context is only about the end-time work of the two witnesses with the seven churches at the end, showing that they are not just nose to tail through history, starting with Ephesus with Paul and Peter and, and going through the Middle Ages and down to today with Philadelphia and Laodicea being at the end. All seven churches are around at the end. <clears throat> then in Revelation 2 and 3, it addresses each one of them. Now, do you suppose that perhaps God is going to raise up seven towns here at the end without walls, which together will represent the whole church? Seven different distinct congregations. And that Revelation 2 and 3 may describe what each of those will be. Each has a separate set of problems. Each has a separate set of positive points. But all seven are established. Now when God says in Isaiah 41, in this context, I'm going to establish seven trees, and we see seven eyes on the stone put before Joshua, and we see seven candlesticks in Zechariah 4 before Zerubbabel and Joshua who preach to them and give them the truth of God, we may see seven towns that, are, that comprise the remnant of the church of God. Now, they will have different personalities and different sets of problems things that they must overcome in order to be a part of the kingdom of God. I think that this is a very real possibility. Now, when the beast power sets up the image of confusion uh, as per Matthew 24, in Jerusalem, it will probably be in those seven towns. And that will be the sign to flee to a place of safety. And that is the final cut. Because some will be left behind and some will go. So we cannot kid ourselves for one moment that just because we leave Babylon and go out to build the temple of God, that A, we are all converted, or B, that we do not still have problems, or that there will be perfection there immediately because it won't happen that way. Seven will be set up. 
it appears. And they will have their individual personalities and difficulties. All are called upon to repent, change, grow, overcome, and be what they ought to be. And then, when the abomination of desolation is set up, a flight will occur. Those who truly have overcome and grown will escape, and those who are make-believe or playing church and hypocritical will be left behind. That's the way it's going to be. We must, from the heart, repent and turn to God with our whole heart and overcome and grow if we're to be a part of the kingdom of God and be protected during that last three and a half years of trouble such as there's never been on the earth. So just being there is not the end of the matter. And I think that that is reflected here in the story in Ezra. We've tied in some other scriptures that might have some bearing on it. But there were some there who were not truly of Israel or could not prove it. They might say, I'm part of the church, but is the conversion really there? Or on some level, are they kidding themselves and trying to kid us and kid God who cannot be kidded? And God will make sure that it is known one way or another. So these people are listed as possibilities here. But they could not prove their pedigree. And we have people in the church, even in Philadelphia, it says there in Revelation 3, who say they are Jews, but are not. They say I'm a part of the true church of God, but they're not really spiritual Jews. So, Revelation and Ezra seem to be very close in accord here in telling the story of the end time. So they were regarded as polluted. Does it not say in the book of Haggai that the priesthood has to make a change or a difference between the holy and the unholy? Let's go for a moment back to Daniel 5. Daniel 5. Remember the story here now where Daniel and the young men were castrated and made servants in the government of Babylon when they came in. And it talks about the eunuchs for God in Isaiah. And I've drawn that parallel before that we have been emasculated uh, in one sense by Babylon and that we are very, very limited in being able to do service for God because of what Babylon has done to us. And we have to stand up and he uses a physical analogy of testicles as what is used in, uh, I guess, slang today. Do you have any? Stand up and be counted. And God is going to call for that. But the church has been so emasculated by Babylon that 90% will not stand up and show that they have any. 10% will. Of course, it's speaking of men, not women here, in the analogy. Women will stand up too and prove that they are true Israelites and true worshipers of God. But generally, God uses masculine analogies in these things. 
Not always. Sometimes he uses the women about giving birth and so on, and giving birth to righteousness and to Christ in us and so on through many of the prophecies. So in one case he might use men as an example, in other cases he uses the women as an example, but both pointing to the same thing. In this case it's the men. But they had been made eunuchs by Babylon to serve Babylon and not be able to pollute the, Babylon, the Babylonian race. Well, God tells us to come out of it and to show that we are truly men and men of God. So these men had been castrated and made eunuchs of men, and then uh, the story goes that they were there. Nebuchadnezzar had his dreams. And then he had a son, chapter 5. After Nebuchadnezzar had died, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. So this is a pretty good-sized party. A thousand people. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Oh, he's having a big drunken party, and he says, You know... I know about those Jews. Don't we have all those vessels from their temple? Wouldn't it be fun to drink wine out of their vessels here at our party? Because we are Babylon. He was showing disdain, hatred, prejudice against the Jews who were the captives in Babylon. He despised them. Is that going to be the attitude of Babylon toward God's people at the end? Well, Daniel's an end-time book. This is a story about what will occur at the end, not just what happened in history. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Didn't praise the God of heaven who had produce these vessels in the first place, but their own gods and materiality. That's what we worship today is our major god in this nation is materiality. Physical wealth, physical beauty, inner beauty doesn't matter. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Scared him half to death. Here was just a hand writing on the wall. No body there, just writing. It wrote that his kingdom was going to fall, and that very night he was slain and Babylon fell. Now at some point, is Babylon then going to come against the vessels of the temple of God, his people, and try to destroy? Yes, we're going to be persecuted. Some will be killed of the church. Matthew 24, Luke 21, various other scriptures. Revelation 5, start naming them. They're going to come against. And in fact, I understand Daniel 8, right? The little horn, there is one of the leaders of, four, of the four-part division of the United States. And one of those leaders of one of those four parts, as it will be divided, will come after the church. They will show disdain. 
will they also come after the physical vessels of the temple when God reveals them? I would be surprised if they didn't because there will be great value there materially to them. And will they pollute? Will they at some point maybe even take over those vessels and pollute them? I don't know. Maybe it's only a physical analogy having to do with the spiritual, the people. But it could be very easily both. Why is this chapter about Belshazzar in the middle of the story of Nebuchadnezzar and then those things that come after? It only has to do with this, and then he isn't mentioned anymore. Well, I believe we've seen that the vessels of the temple of God, both physical and spiritual, will show up and come together at the end to show both a physical and a spiritual uh, confirmation that God is God. And the whole world is going to hate it. The whole world will reject it, and they will do everything they can to pollute it, misuse it, and abuse it. And God will destroy their kingdom. Because he is God. This is what is about to come. Are we willing to stand and show God as God? Or will we wilt? When they come around with the mark of the beast and they want to put a chip in our hand or our forehead so that we can buy and sell, we'll say, well, I can't buy groceries without it. What am I going to do? Give me my chip. Or will we say, I don't want that. I don't need to buy and sell. God will take care of me. Which will it be? We have to make a difference between the unclean and the clean. God is going to make people stand up as clean or unclean. We will either go the way of the world or we will go the way of God. And I'll tell you what, going the way of God is going to be scary. And that's why he says don't fear. Because he will allow us to look like we are about to be destroyed. And then he will deliver us at the last split second, if we believe. God does it that way. He always has. Remember the Red Sea? Mountains on this side, mountains on that side, water in front, and Egyptians behind. Here they come. Can you imagine it being any different at the end? An abomination will be set up among God's people in Jerusalem, and I believe it will be the villages, probably seven of them, where it will be set up. And from there we must flee for our lives. What will it be? Trust God. He says he's going to send a flood after the army that, or send, uh, yeah, a flood to destroy the army that comes after us. Revelation 12. It's going to be that close. It's going to be so close that he says, don't even go back in your house to get anything. If you're in field, just go. It will be that close. Last split second. How long does it take to run back in the house and grab something you want to be sure you have? Water bottle or Bible, it doesn't matter. Just a few seconds. 
and you could be on your way. God says, don't even do that. I'm going to bring this down where it's going to be so tight. But if you go back in for anything, it'll be too late. We must believe God. We must be obedient to God. Will we be found to be polluted and not be a part of what God is going to do, or will we not? We have time right now to make changes, to grow, to overcome, to change. There are going to be villages set up, not just a village, but villages, towns. And they will each have their own problems. The more I've thought about this, the more I think it probably will be seven. There just seem to be too many indications. And each will need to overcome to be a part of the kingdom of God. So, if you're expecting perfection here, it's not here yet. If you're expecting perfection when the villages come together, it won't be there yet. They'll still be growing and overcoming to do. It'll just be people who are willing to come and to build and to work at building, both a spiritual and maybe a physical temple. And they won't be perfect yet. But God does say in that house, that temple, once it's built, he will bring peace, Haggai 2.9. So we may not be perfect, but there will be peace. And then there will be a separation for those who have not overcome and those who have, those who go to a place of safety for final training and those who are not. It's going to come down to that. I'll tell you what, we'd better be sincere, hadn't we? We'd better be headed the right direction. All right, let's go back to Ezra 2 then. They were going to wait for a final cut to be done with the Urim and the Thummim. God uses his Holy Spirit instead of Urim and Thummim today. The last place it was used was in choosing the final apostle to replace Judas in Acts. After that, there's no record of ever being used because the spirit of God was in the church and the spirit of discernment and the ministry or the priesthood then was there to determine, in part at least, by the fruits, conversion and non-conversion. And God himself is going to make a difference and make the final cuts by who escapes and who does not. It won't be up to the ministry at that point because they, too, will be told not to go back in there, or have been told, don't go back in your house to get anything. You too must run. <laughs> so it, it isn't up to individuals then to make it a choice. You go, you don't go. It'll be those whom God sees fit to make it. Some undoubtedly will go back in their house. Some will not be ready. Some will think, well, I've got to take the cat or the dog or my kid. Well, I left the baby in the house. What am I going to do? God says don't go in for anything. Maybe when the time comes close, you'll carry the baby on your hip at all times. I don't know. I think we'll know when the time is close. But doesn't matter. Remember, minister, we all have to make the final cut, don't we? 
All right, verse 64 of Ezra 2. The whole congregation together was 42,303 score. 42,360 that left Babylon to go back to build the temple. I don't think we'll have that many here at the end. It's a different story. Uh, be a, basically 10% of what was. Beside their servants and their maids, of whom there were 7,337, and there were among them 200 singers, men, and singing women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their asses 6,720. I don't know why he names that. I don't think these camels and horses and asses are going to be resurrected and be in the kingdom. But, you know, a little by little we see why God included this. And at some point we're going to see why he included even the numbers of animals that went with them. That's an interesting one. Question mark. I have no clue as to why he mentioned that. But I'll bet he didn't do it without a purpose. Someday a light will come on and we'll say, hey, that's why he did that. Bet you. Verse 68, And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the eternal, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in its place. They gave, after their ability, to the treasure of the work threescore, 1,000 grams of gold, 5,000 a pound of silver, and 100 priest garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nephanims dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. So they went back and settled the land and went about building the temple. Some probably worked physically on it. Others settled in their towns and villages and began to make a living and to produce and helped. So that may be true here in the end as well. There may be some who come who are stirred to do the work specifically. There may be those who support. I don't know exactly how that will turn out to be. But we shall see. It does say in Isaiah 55, on downstream a little bit from there, that uh, uh, people can come and drink wine and milk without money. Oh, there's one other scripture I wanted to tie in here before I close this. Uh, just take a minute. And that is Isaiah 52 in regards to the vessels of the temple. There's a scripture here which I have found curious over the years. And I always assumed it was speaking just of people, uh, but it might have to do even with the physical vessels of the temple, which it is becoming clear must show up here at the end. And that's in Isaiah 52. Here he talks about us waking up and not letting Babylon walk all over us anymore, but to sit up and break the shackles, break the bondage that they have, the bands of our neck in verse 2 of chapter 52 and how we've sold ourselves into Babylon for nothing, and how God is going to redeem us without money and take us out of it, uh, and how things will turn around in verse 9, and God is going to make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. So it's talking about the same time that Isaiah 40 is, that about one crying in the wilderness, and a message spiritually, about Isaiah 45, uh, Cyrus the king or Cyrus, who may not be a king, but someone that God appoints with a probably a, a name of royalty. Uh, it's speaking of the same time, when God is going to make bear his arm as to who he is right here in the end time. So this isn't speaking of some captivity two or three or four thousand years before Christ. 
This is speaking of now. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, verse 11, Depart you, depart you, go you out from there, touch no unclean thing, go you out of the midst of her, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Now, I have thought of us as vessels of the Spirit of God and how we are to be clean. And if we're going to represent God, we have to be clean vessels, not polluted as Belshazzar polluted the vessels of the temple. But could it also be that the physical vessels of the temple will show up and those who are put in charge of them, because Cyrus obviously gives them over to the church. And God says, if you're going to be a part of this, and if you're going to be in charge of and be involved with the physical, spiritual, and gold vessels of the temple, you had better be clean. Either way, whether it's just speaking of the vessel spiritually, of us individually as vessels of God's temple, the spiritual temple, or whether it also includes the physical vessels. We have to be upright, honest, sincerely serving God, and clean. No fornication, no adultery, no lying, no stealing, no cheating. We must keep the commandments of God. We must do it if we're going to be included. God makes it very clear here that either way, we must be clean if we're to bear his vessels. God destroyed Jerusalem, and it said it would become a den of dragons, Jeremiah 9, verse 11. And there would be no inhabitants in the cities of Judah and in Jerusalem. It would become desolate. Why? Because of sin of all kinds. And God is not going to turn over to a people his city, Jerusalem, are caused to build the temple of God. Anyone who is doing the things that caused it to be destroyed in the first place. He wants us to be holy, to put on our clean garments, to be true vessels of the temple of God, fit to be in the temple of God. Otherwise, we cannot be included. That puts it on us to grow, to change, to overcome, to seek God with our whole hearts. I want to be a part of this at the end. I want us all to be. So we need to examine ourselves carefully and be sure that we separate the clean from the unclean and that we become true vessels for the temple of God then he may even allow us to bear the physical vessels of the temple. But I don't think he's going to show them to anybody who is not willing to walk his way. I just don't think he will. He destroyed it because people didn't walk his way. And now he is seeking a people who will walk his way. And he will use them to make bare his holy arm to the entire world.